we are changing the global conversation on emotional health and self-love. Our feelings are just feedback, and that feedback is constantly giving us valuable insights as to what still needs to be healed. It is that simple, and it is that complicated. When you continuously follow your passion and do what brings you joy, adding more pleasure and fun to your life, you can't go wrong. You can't fail. I pinky swear that to be true. Welcome to How to Be a Human with Lise Wilcox. I love this conversation. Hello, hello, and welcome back to How to Be a Human, the podcast with Lise Wilcox. I am really, really, I don't even know what the right word is. Excited doesn't quite cut it. I feel like I'm very honored to share this space with Craig Stanland, whom, like most of my guests, I also met on Instagram. Craig, welcome. Lise, thank you so much for having me on. I was so excited when you reached out and I saw your name and I was like, I'm so excited to do that. <laughs> it's such a pleasure. I think that you're so interesting and I feel very grateful that I just get to, like I have you all to myself for the next hour that I can just, that we can just chat. Um, are you in New York City? I am in Brooklyn. Oh, right on. Yep. Oh my gosh. Okay, a few years ago, a good few years ago, my favorite artist from Holland was doing um, a show opening in the Lower East Side. So a friend of mine and I decided to like drive to New York. I'm I'm just east of Toronto, and we decided oh, wow. to like make the nine hour drive down. It was so amazing. Um, anyway, we drove down there and we stayed in Brooklyn for the weekend. Like we went to the show. Interestingly, I got there just as she sold the last piece. And I was like, oh my God, that's it. But um, we stayed in Brooklyn for the weekend. So now having spent three days in Brooklyn, I feel like I'm a bit of an expert. <laughs> oh, you, you know it all. You're good to go. Do you know where you stayed in Brooklyn? <laughs> yeah, like on one street in Williamsburg. <laughs> oh, cool. So you were... Oh, so uh, Williamsburg is incredible. And then going it over is. the Lower East Side was an easy commute for you. So I actually totally. used, I used, to work in the, I used to work in the Lower East Side. So I'm very familiar with that. I love that. Um, I also have like a bit of a, pa- not a bit, I have a huge passion for New York in particular. So this is even better. Um, okay. So to formally introduce you, I want to say that Craig Stanland is a reinvention architect. His mission is to help people whose lives have fallen apart people who want to start over, rebuild, and reinvent themselves so they can have the extraordinary life they've always wanted. He does that through coaching and through authoring his very soon-to-be-published memoir, The Blank Canvas. He's a highly sought-after public speaker with an incredible TED Talk, TEDx Talk, titled How I Learned My Greatest Worth in Federal Prison. So let's start there. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how it got you to this moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll go back to 2012. In mm-hmm. 2012, I had I had what most people would say was it all. I had you know the successful career, beautiful wife. Um, I owned multiple homes. I drove the nicest cars, uh, wore the nicest watches, ate at the best restaurants. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was I was living the high life, mm-hmm. but the entire time. I, I just felt like a phony. I felt like an imposter. I didn't feel worthy of my success. I didn't feel worthy of my amazing, beautiful wife. It was just an empty, hollow feeling. Mm-hmm. And what started happening was with 
purchasing all those nice things and living that lifestyle, that started becoming my identity. That's mm-hmm. who I was. That's what I was rooted in and, and how I thought I had to show up. And so here I am, you know, having to fuel this identity to keep myself afloat. And the products that I used to sell were becoming more of a commodity. So my paychecks mm-hmm. were shrinking. So now mm-hmm. I've got this, this almost addiction mm-hmm. to, to have to maintain my identity and my paychecks are shrinking. So I was able to, to identify um, an opportunity within our partner company's warranty policy that I could exploit for my financial gain. Mm-hmm. And I started doing that. And I committed this fraud for just under a year until the FBI came knocking on my door. And I was sub- subsequently arrested. I mm-hmm. pled guilty to one count of mail fraud because I was guilty. I was sentenced to two years of federal prison and I lost absolutely everything. I, uh, my wife divorced me. Mm-hmm. I lost all my homes, lost all the cars. I have a court order barring me from my old industry. Um, and I had to, I had to reinvent myself from scratch. Okay, and that's thanks. just, that's just how I, that's how I found myself where I am today. I just like I've I've had the pleasure of reading the first chapter of your book. I think I just downloaded it on your website, and um, like hearing you speak to this experience, reading what you wrote about the experience, it's like it's this hauntingly powerful human experience that it feels like you're describing, right? That you did everything right. You went through the checklist. You married the right person. You got the right job. I'm really curious to know what car you drove just because I'm kind of into cars, but like you got the right car, all of the right things. Right. And it feels like that is, and really what we're talking about today, it feels like that is the ultimate freedom, right? You had the freedom to have it all and to do it all. And then that freedom almost, it sounds like it it became oppressive. Well, so well, I'll, I'll answer the car question because I'm a car okay. fanatic as well. <laughs> Thank I had you. A, I had a I had a 1998 um, M Coupe BMW, mm-hmm. and there was mm-hmm. it only had 15,000 miles on it. It was red. Mm-hmm. It was a convertible. It was gorgeous. Uh, I had another BMW, and then my wife had we had a Subaru and mm-hmm. and went to a Volkswagen Eurovan actually for oh, yeah. our business. We needed something to to haul things with. So I, mean, right I, I loved my cars, but to your, to your, you know, your, your main question there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I was to de- define freedom back then and, and what I truly wanted, I would have said that that was it being able to buy whatever you want, whenever yeah. you want. And I love the word that you use oppressive because that's exactly mm-hmm. what it became. Here I am thinking that, you know, I, I'm living this free life and it was anything but it was yeah. a form of imprisonment yes. to have to maintain this identity, to, to measure my own self-worth against my things. It, it just became crushing and debilitating. And it was mm-hmm. the exact opposite of what I said I wanted. You yeah. know, I was imprisoning myself with every purchase. And yes. it, was, it, it was just, and, it, and I could feel it. I don't know if this is going to make sense. I could feel mm-hmm. it but I was also blind to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was, it was such a strange dichotomy to be experiencing, but it was, I mean, 
looking at it now with the hindsight mm-hmm. of 2020, it's just so crystal clear. But when you're in the moment, it's yeah. so when it's like holding your hand a couple inches away from your face, you can't yes. actually see the details of your hand. It was too close and I just couldn't see it. Wow. Um, I like too that you frame that under the same uh, under the umbrella of addiction because I think that's a it's really powerful and very accurate imagery that you you know you create a lifestyle you create a series of expectations that you then become beholden to that you become addicted to because in the absence of that if you look psychologically if that lifestyle if those expectations if this certain way of being becomes a part of your identity like how you're actually defining who you are as a man, who you are as a person, you can't go without because then to go without that, it is, it's like putting yourself through rapid detox, which doesn't work. Right. So it sounds, you know, as the observer that in being able to, or um, needing to feed that addiction, as you watched your supply start to dwindle down, you had to take some pretty extreme measures to like support the habit. That's exactly right. That, that's exactly right. Here comes along this opportunity. And to, mm-hmm. to compound to this opportunity was the fact that I always had a dream of creating mm-hmm. my own business, of being an entrepreneur, even before being an entrepreneur was cool. You know, yes. I mean, I always wanted to do that, always wanted to write a book, always wanted to do something creatively. But I was, yes. too, I, honestly, I was too afraid to take that yeah. leap. And the more that my identity had become rooted in those things, and I'm making several hundreds of thousands of dollars to yeah. walk away from that and to start something new, it, it just was too daunting and it was just mm-hmm. too big. So now my crime comes along and it was a fairly mm-hmm. complex fraud. And that kind of gave me that substitute of creating something. Mm-hmm. And, and That's even so though interesting. I knew, right. And even though I knew it wasn't right, it fulfilled a little bit of that creative need that holy shit that, that I, that I, that was missing. And, and quite frankly, it was a shortcut and I knew Mm -hmm. it was a shortcut, but I rationalized it. And I said, look at me, I created this thing, even though it was a total thing, but I totally, totally. And I, and I, and I'm fulfilling that thing that's missing inside of me. So now I've got, you know, the shrinking paychecks, I've got the, the crime, I've got the creativity. It's all coming together in, in quite frankly, a perfect storm. I'm pretty obsessed with the uh, like the commonalities, the shared experiences of the human experience, right? And I say obsessed because to me, it's so fascinating. It's not from a place of judgment. It's from a place of like, almost like, uh, like spectrum level observation that it's like, that makes so much sense, right? That like that is so rational in its thinking that I have this set of values. I have this set of expectations. I have this set of, you know, we all have our own subconscious beliefs. We carry stuff generationally. We carry stuff from past lives. Like we have all this programming at play, working in the background, kind of pulling the strings. And that all led you to this one particular place. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, I have a need for creativity as we all do, but I have this need for creativity. I'm going to like project onto you that there's some resistance there because you are a man and it's kind of less okay for a man to be creative than it is okay for a woman to be creative. So there's like, 
lots of fears. There are lots of stories that are like, it's not safe. It's not actually emotionally or neurologically safe for me to be creative. However, as I like need to get creative about solving my own problem, here's how I use my intellect. Here's how I fuel that creative need to create like this, basically to work a loophole that I'm sure you found in whatever system it's in to then actually feel fulfilled in that deep intrinsic value to to what actually makes you, you. Oh my God. I love all of that. (laughs) (laughs) I love, I can't wait. I can't wait to listen to this again. Just so I can can absorb that because there's so much in that, that I need to listen to that again. I always joke with my, (laughs) I always joke with my clients that like, I think in four dimensions, but I have like language is so linear that I can only speak in one dimension. So like I'm sitting here and it's like, you know, I can see all these like factors above my head that I'm pulling out and trying to synthesize into one linear sentence. So I'm really happy that 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 kind of made sense to you. <laughs> it, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how much sense it actually made. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean this in a, in a very positive way. Mm-hmm. It, it hurt a little bit while you were saying uh, I could feel yeah. it in my in my gut and in my heart. Yeah. I, I could I could feel the resonance and the weight behind what you were saying. And it's I, mm-hmm. you used a magic word in there. And sorry to cut you off. You used a magic mm-hmm. word because I've been I've been toying with this idea for a little bit. It it what I'm about to say I came up with about two years ago, mm-hmm. and it felt very true to me. But I'm starting to re-explore it. And the fact is that I subconsciously I subconsciously blew up my own life because I didn't have the tools to actually know how to do it on my own without Mm -hmm. unwinding all those, everything that you were just talking about, without unwinding those, those Mm -hmm. beliefs and who I was, it -hmm. was as if I had to create my own blank canvas. I had to wipe the slate completely clean so that I could start over. And I wasn't living in alignment with what I truly wanted. And I, and I believe that I subconsciously destroyed it all to mm-hmm. get me to that place of ground zero to start over. And I mean, that's fact, right? That like, first of all, I'm really, I am actually very sorry if that was too intense. Like if that did cause you pain in any way, that's so not my intention. Like by any, by oh, any no, means. No, 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 In a good okay. way. In a good way. No, okay. I don't like that. No, I appreciate it. I love it. Okay. So, so like, that's the thing. It's, that is fact, right? Is that we have who we are at our core. We have, you know, I would argue that it's our soul that we come into this lifetime with this soul that has, you know, infinite parameters of what it needs to learn in this lifetime, in this moment that we take with us onto the next, or I don't know what happens after that. That's like beyond my pay grade, but in, in tandem with that, we have, you know, our thoughts, which dictate our actions and behaviors, but our thoughts are dictated by our subconscious beliefs. And all of that subconscious programming happens at a, at a level that like, we don't even have access to unless you go deep with somebody who's trained to facilitate that kind of release work. Right. Um, and it's fascinating to me because that is the work that I do in my own practice. It's fascinating to watch how these tiny little seeds get planted early, early, early in our lives. And that becomes this like oak tree of a belief system 
that we feel beholden to until we consciously choose not to. And when we develop, sorry, this is like, I get so nerdy about this because I'm so passionate about it. But when we have that experience in our earliest childhood, that becomes the framework for what feels neurologically safe for us. So even if we develop a belief that is not healthy, that is judgmental, that is toxic, that absolutely does not serve us, our brain loves status quo. And we like, we're not able to change it unless we consciously choose to change it. So we've created this baseline feeling of safety on something that is not actually safe or good for us. But because of the way our subconscious mind works, that it is designed to alert us to signs of danger in our environment. If we act in opposition to whatever that baseline feeling of safety is, it tells us that what we're doing now is unsafe. So we keep living out and acting out all the things that all the programs, all the stories, all the narratives that we acquired early, early on, even when they don't say uh, when they don't serve us. So I, I love that you have that conscious awareness. That's like, no, this, I, I did this subconsciously, but almost deliberately, right? Well, if I can't, if it doesn't feel safe, if it doesn't feel comfortable, if it doesn't feel acceptable to explore what I really want to explore, trust me, I'm going to find a way to explore it, but I'm going to do it in a way that's, that really isn't serving me. Now, ultimately for you, I would argue it did serve you because it led you to this point, which sounds like it's kind of exactly where you wanted to be, even though you had to go through a shitstorm to get there. I wouldn't. So a lot of people uh, ask me, you know, would you, given the opportunity, would you yeah. go back and do anything differently? And yeah. my my answer is the same to everybody. There's not enough money in the world yeah. for me to go back and change anything. I am exactly wow. where I am meant to be doing exactly what I'm meant to be doing. And wow. I love yeah. the life that I've created. There's no way I would change it. There's absolutely no way. I love everything that you just said, please. And get nerdy as, as nerdy as you want. <laughs> I, I'm like a sponge that absorbs all of it. I love the nerdy stuff. I love going deep on it. So, I mean, we can geek out to our heart's content. It's so funny. It's like, this is the shit that I want to talk about all the time, but it started to like interfere with my friendships because now I don't know how to turn it off and just have like quote unquote, a regular conversation with somebody. Cause I just want to know, like, I'm always listening for the real answer behind the answer. And so it's like, thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. I have, I have with, with my friends, I will, if they say something, I will, I, you know, I'll ask them something that gets me, you know, that piques my interest and the coach in me, you know, comes yeah. out and I was like, can I be coach Craig for a second? <laughs> no, I'll, seriously. I'll, I'll ask for permission because sometimes they just want their friends. Can I coach for a second? And you know, yeah. half the time they say yes, half the time they say no. <laughs> uh, for what it's worth, my kids do that to me too. They'll like, they'll look at me and be like, no, like that's too coachy. <laughs> like you need to, you need to just be our mom for a second. It's like, oh, right. Sorry. Uh, anyway. So, okay. So we have this now like creative outlets that you've created um, and established. And then everything changes, right? You get found out. I, what I get happens found next? out. Yeah. yeah. And you know what I, I want to actually just touch on real quick. I hope you don't oh, yeah. mind. You know, we were talking about freedom and yes. how important freedom is. And that is what I would have said that I wanted. So this, yes. this crime was so complex and it was so many balls up in the air that 
I locked myself even deeper into prison before I was in prison, just by the nature of the crime and how many balls were in the air and how many lies I had to maintain to keep it going with my, with my family, with my wife, you know, it was, it was, it, yes, there was, there was a significant financial payout, but the mental cost of it was so steep. And it was Mm -hmm. the, like I said earlier, it's the antithesis of freedom. You Mm -hmm. know, this crime just became its own, its own entity. And, and then I'll bring it back to where you were, where you were going. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I was, I was arrested on October 1st, 2013. Mm -hmm. And that's just when it all came plummeting down. You know, that's just, I mean, that was entering, that was entering a state of uncertainty that it's almost hard to, to, to speak about, to, to find the words, to be able to articulate how uncertain after getting arrested by the FBI, one's life really becomes, because I didn't know, I didn't know if I was going to be going to prison. I was Mm -hmm. unaware that there are different levels of prison um, Mm -hmm. here in the States. So I figured Mm -hmm. I am the listeners. I'm five, four, at the time, I weighed 140 pounds. Oh my um, God. I'm not a large individual. And so I spent months upon months before I realized I'd be going to a safer facility every single day thinking that I was going to be raped and beaten. Oh, I'm for sure. Used, I'm used to prison that we see on TV and in the in the movies. And yeah, that's what yeah. I was convinced of. So it was just, it, it, what's going to happen with my career? What's going to happen with my homes? What's going to happen with my with my marriage, you know, what's going to happen to me now that I don't have all of those things to maintain this identity. The identity disappeared almost overnight. It, it wow. was just, just this dark cloud of uncertainty that followed my wife and I, um, you know, quite frankly, for about 10 months until I actually did report to prison. Wow. I also, I can't, there's so many things I can't believe, but I can't believe it takes that long, right? Because that's like, it's called liminal space. When you, when you're in that space between what was and what will be, when you're just fucking like in this jello suspension model of like, what the fuck is my life right now? And the fact that that sounds cruel to me, but I'm a very black and white thinker. Um, It sounds cruel to be like, who knows? Why don't you just, why don't you just be in this liminal space for the next 10 months and we'll just, your life the way it was, is totally not a thing anymore, but we have no way, no answers for what your life actually will be. I, I called it, I called it either limbo or purgatory. Yeah. It, it was yeah. just that in between space. And quite frankly, I was lucky that it was only 10 months. Mine was oh one God. of the fastest uh, that my attorney had ever seen. I went away with guys who had about seven years, some of them in between arrest and actually reporting to prison. So living in that, that liminal space. And, you know, th- they actually started creating their new lives and sometimes wow. would forget that they were going to be going away. It, oh it's, it's, it's insane. And it didn't. Wow. So I, I got a little I got a little bit of certainty back when I realized I'd be going to a safe facility. You yes. know, when I realized that my safety was going to be OK. I mean, I can't, I can't explain what a relief that is, but I'm still in that unknown space because prison's completely an unknown entity. And Mm -hmm. what is, that has a shelf life, that has an expiration date. What's going to happen when I get out from there? So Mm -hmm. it's still just years of uncertainty and not knowing, not knowing what the hell's going to happen. 
Well, and you know, I know you know this, but like one of the greatest fears, which we had a master class in, in 2020, one of the, the greatest fears is the unknown, right? Like as humans, we are so drawn to predictable predictability and to routine to the comfort of both, that that is what helps to create that feeling and that sense of safety. So to be without that sense of safety, you know, I talk about emotional health. This is like next level emotional health and probably into mental health. Cause it's just like, you have no, no framework, no reference. A, a friend of mine um, at university uh, was, she was from the West coast and she was really, really outdoorsy. Like she like would launch herself out of helicopters and then go skiing um, down the mountain. And I remember her saying to, I don't know even why we were having this conversation at age 20, but I remember her saying to me, Lise, if you ever get stuck in an avalanche, the first thing you do is spit. And I remember thinking like, so help me God, if I ever am anywhere that puts me remotely close to an avalanche, but okay, why would I spit? And she's like, because you get so disoriented in the, the uh, act of the avalanche, you have no idea which way is up. So the first thing you do is spit and then you fucking dig in the opposite direction because gravity will obviously pull your saliva down and you go the opposite way. <clears throat> and I feel like what you're describing is like, I'm spitting and I can't see where it's landing. Like, which way do I dig now? There was, I had no idea. I had mm -hmm. no idea which way to dig. I had no idea what, what to do. I was mm -hmm. very, I, I was fortunate. You know, I found my routine. Prison is mm -hmm. all about routine. So I was able to find that routine to get to, to claim some of that certainty okay. back okay. into my life, you know, to, to, you know, go to the gym at certain times. I worked in the prison kitchen. So that okay. spent, that was three and a half days out of the week. So I was able to grab some of that. But I still knew looming in the distance was what happens when I walk out of here? And, and that is where oh, I yeah. really got very stuck was I don't know what I'm going to do when I get out of here. And that anxiety was then mm -hmm. was fueled by the, the pure shame that I, mm -hmm. that I experienced because I knew what I was doing was wrong. And I ignored mm -hmm. the voice inside of me that told me not to do it. The shame that I experienced was so wow. all-consuming and sucked the very soul out of me that mm -hmm. I just couldn't, I, I couldn't, I was like, how, I don't know what my future is and how can I possibly have a good one when I did what I did and I'm mm -hmm. not worthy of anything good happening in the future because I did what I did. And it was just a horrible coalescence of emotions uh no kidding I, I mean what comes with that fear of the unknown is this this period of transition right transitions are really really challenging in anybody's life and in childbirth we talk about transition because that is the moment where like shit is getting so real like you no longer feel like you're even in your body it's just like what the is happening. And it's called transition for a reason, because you're going from being pregnant to being a mother. <clears throat> the transition of moving, one of the most emotionally traumatic events in a person's life. The, there's transition into being married. There's a huge transition into being not married. Like going through divorce is a wild trauma. So, you know, especially as a man, like men have a, a next level 
identity thing happen identity thing that happens with association to like purpose and contribution and like feeling that they're really doing something. And so I feel like you went through like the Mac daddy of almost like this checklist of, of, of transitions in a person's life that you just went through and like checked them all off in a period of like 12 months. It was pretty, I mean, pretty much, I would say, um, even longer than that, because it was, yeah. you know, it was the 10 months from getting arrested until reporting to prison, then serving 21 months in prison, and then having, you know, three years of supervised release after that. And in between all of that was losing the identity. My wife uh, told me on December 22nd, uh, in the prison visiting room that she was leaving me. So wow. it was divorce, it was you know, losing my career. I mean, just at the bottom, every time I thought I hit bottom, it fell, it fell further. Wow. It just kept on falling further. And to the point, I'll, I'll share a story with you just to give, give you context. Um, and I talk about this in the Ted talk, but just to give context of how low I really went mm-hmm. and how consumed by shame I was, my brain, my mind had mm-hmm. created a a short film of what it would look like to kill myself, what my own suicide would look like. And it was so vivid. It was so clear. Um, It was in one of the basements of the house, one of the houses I owned, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, a pistol in the mouth and just, you know, I won't go into the details here, but it just, it played on a loop every second of every day. Mm -hmm. And I had to make it stop. And Mm -hmm. I, I started planning on how I was going to kill myself. My, my, resources in prison were very limited but i was like there's there's got to be a way and that's just i mean talk about you know transition was all of it brought me to that point where i just i had to make it stop and and it was i mean the pain was just i would go to sleep every night um holding my pillow i didn't want to cry you're not gonna i don't want to be the guy who cries in prison that's not a good look i feel like every guy must cry how do you not cry in prison though how, how do you not? I mean, there's actually the, I did cry twice, but I made sure I was completely by myself. Wow. Um, you know, I, I just didn't want to, I don't think anybody would have judged me. This was probably a lot of my own masculine upbringing where I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not mm-hmm. going to be seen breaking, but I would go to sleep every night saying, please make it stop. Please make mm-hmm. it fucking stop. Mm-hmm. Please kill me in my sleep. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I was, I was pissed off and annoyed every morning when I saw the light of a new day. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just so mad that my, my dreams and wishes didn't come true. And that's, that's really how low I went with, with all of this. To me, that brings up, again, this notion and this concept of freedom, right? Like looping back, what I wanted was freedom. And what I got was a lifestyle that was anything but free. And I know that sounds like totally wacky to a lot of people, but it's true. Like when you create this, intense system of what freedom looks like, you are beholden to maintaining that level of freedom. And it's crazy. People talk about like wanting to be very wealthy and they forget that part of that wealth is tons of responsibility. And as your house gets bigger, as your properties multiply, now we are talking about bringing in teams of people to manage every house and like what that looks like, right? Like there's so much more responsibility that comes with these levels of freedom. And then you had the freedom to create this um, loop. I'm just going to call it a loophole, like to create this other system that would support your quote unquote lifestyle of freedom. 
And when that level of freedom came apart, just like your previous level of freedom came apart, now you go to a place in which you really have no freedom. It sounds to me like I, I, I did a sociology degree, but like all of my classes were in criminology because I'm just really fascinated at the adaptability or by the adaptability of humans. And, you know, I sound like an asshole when I say this, but having watched a lot of crime TV and a lot of like prison narratives, not for the the drama of it, but for the, how do people form communities? How do people adapt to their, like, how do you create freedom and remain or maintain a sense of humanity and humanness in an environment that doesn't necessarily foster either? And I feel like humans continuously do that, but you get into this place that's so routine oriented and it's state mandated that you be there. Now you have like a totally different level of freedom that's, that's in opposition to probably so much of what we all internalize freedom to look and feel like that the only freedom quote unquote that you really had was like, okay, what agency do I have? Do I stay in this life or do I end it? Right. I still have the freedom of that ultimate choice, which sounds really dark and macabre, but it's true. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy you said that that was something that was so empowering to me. Yeah. That was so empowering to me that the, I had the choice whether or not to end my life. Yeah. And yeah. that that choice actually it helped keep me from doing that yeah. because I realized I still had choice. How and fucking insanely powerful is that? Right. It, it's it's mind-blowing and it does sound counter, counterintuitive and it's, it does sound very dark, but it's so empowering to take yeah. that step back when you're in that position and in that that consumption of emotion and just overwhelmed, be like, you know what? The act of, you know, one of one of my options was to hang myself in the woods. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's like I, I'm I'm choosing how I'm going to even do it. Yes. that's a choice. Yeah. That's even a choice, and it 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 helps it helps step back away from it to mm-hmm. understand that I had that that choice. It was so. Mm-hmm so empowering and to to your point just real quick the the humanitarian the, the communities that are formed inside prison there is something so interesting so i was sent away with other white collar offenders so i actually the guy who lived next door to me was a billionaire yeah. um, my my cellmate was you know worth several hundred millions of dollars and none of that mattered yeah none of that mattered we were all prisoners Holy were, shit. It was just an equalizer. And that's what brings us together. And for the most part, a lot of the the um the guards, the COs, they yeah. treated us well. There were some that were assholes. I mean, it's like life, you're gonna find assholes, you know, everywhere. But it was a little <laughs> bit of us against, <laughs> us against them, us against them. So we were able to unite and bond. And it didn't matter that somebody was a nonviolent drug offender. Um, you know, who was caught with you know X amount of kilos of cocaine and the billionaire. We're all just prisoners and we're all kind of against the system. And that's, that's you know, that's where the bond comes from. What do you mean against the system? Against, well, you know, it was against the government, if you will. You know, yeah. I was wrong. And I, 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 at first I was blaming the government for what I had yeah. done. But when I fully accepted responsibility, I stepped out of that victim role. But there is a big unifier in prison of like, they are wrong. 
and they yes. being the government, you know, pointing the finger. <laughs> they, they did something wrong. They treated me unfairly. Wow. And, and, and that's, that's where a lot of people bond. Wow. Oh my God. I have so much to say. I'm just trying to pick like one lane to stay in. Um, so again, centering this conversation around freedom, like you are a white man of privilege, right? Education privilege. You also had the freedom to commit a very particular crime, right? Yeah. And, and like that, and oh God, again, I am risking sounding like such a dick when I say this, but that level of freedom that allowed you to choose a particular crime also then put you in a stream for a particular kind of prison experience, right? Like there's yeah. freedom in that, which means that for other people, there there's less freedom in that, that if you're from a, a different, I would argue race or socio, socioeconomic circumstance, there is less freedom involved. And there are other choices that get made. And those choices lead you to a totally different, different punishment. Does that resonate at all for you to speak to? Or is that just a... It's, no, it's com- it's a completely different experience for, so, I mean, you know, I, I couldn't have been more fortunate to go where I went. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a chance I could have gone to a harsher facility if wow. my facility didn't have uh, the beds available. Wow. So there was a chance I could have gone to a harsher facility. Um, but fortunately, that was not the case. But somebody else who commits, you know, let's say a low level drug offense they are pretty much going to go to a different facility. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, I'm thinking of the analogy of a giant ship in the ocean, you know, turning, turning just the steering wheel, uh, you know, one degree to the right, you know, several, several, you know, miles ahead, then all of a sudden it's made a complete sharp right hand turn. And that is what happens when some people go to certain facilities, you know, it's just that they could go to a one facility and they're, they're, Life takes a little dirt turn to the left and it takes years for you to actually see what the end result of that is. Or you go to another facility and you go to the right and your life is put on a much different path. And it's, yeah. there's, there is, it's a very unfair system. I mean, it's a, it's a completely unfair system. And I'm, I'm not saying that to negate your experience by any means. I'm like, but drawing awareness to the fact that like, again, freedom, 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 freedom. Freedom means one thing, but like freedom is still relative, right? And I think that's the whole point of this is that freedom is so relative, right? It's, it's so relative and prison, prison taught me the beauty and complexity of freedom yeah. in so much that it is, it's so much more than the physical parameters that may be put around someone. It is, it's, it's the mental freedom. I mean, it, it, it's, it's all of it. You know, I'll tell you when I got out and I moved into my apartment uh, mm-hmm. here in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. you know, the first time I walked out of my, my front door of my apartment building, I, I, I stopped. I stopped and I froze in fear yes. of, oh my God, am I allowed to do this? Am yes, I yes. going to get in trouble? And then I had to remember, I'm a free man. I can Holy do shit. this. And then the, the warmth that I felt the this feeling of holy shit i could take a left or i can take a right i can choose which direction i want to go and i remember saying to myself do not ever take this for granted wow 
don't take the ability to go right or left for granted. Wow. And it really has had such a huge impact on my life. And that's, that's the physical parameters of freedom. But what about like the mental parameters of, you know, what I said before, when I had not taken responsibility for my actions mm-hmm. and I was pointing the finger outside of me, that was putting me in my own mental prism, prison of being the victim. You know, mm-hmm. the second I took that responsibility and I accepted it fully and wholly, I did that mm-hmm. while I was still in prison. I felt freedom inside prison yes. when I did yes. that, when I accepted my reality of where I was, because I, I spent so much time in the beginning wishing I was home, wishing I was with my yes. dog and my cat and my wife, who had already told me she was leaving at this point, but I was wishing, wishing, wishing. And one day I just stopped and I go, and I grabbed my pen and paper and I just started writing. And I wrote, I accept that I'm a federally convicted felon. I accept that I'm getting divorced. I accept that I'm financially ruined. And I, I all of the things, all of the realities, no stories, no bullshit, just yes. genuine realities that hurt like hell to accept and to write down. But when I did, when I did that and I finished, I said, holy crap. I just gave myself a starting line. And again, I felt more freedom inside prison. And I share those, those couple of examples because that is just, that's the depth and complexity of freedom is that I could, I could experience freedom in prison. Wow. 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 Can you speak to, cause I want to, I want to talk about forgiveness in a second, because to me, what you're saying ultimately is like when you establish that new baseline and you find freedom in that baseline, that has all kinds of opportunities to lead to then forgiveness and then forgiveness, like next levels, that freedom mentally and emotionally. But I'm wondering if you can speak first to, even if it's briefly, what does freedom look like physically when you're incarcerated? Sure. It is. So again, I was so fortunate at the facility Mm -hmm. I went to. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't have, I didn't actually have bars on a cell. I had had a concrete cubicle so I could walk in and out. We had different buildings that I had freedom to walk from building to building. Other facilities don't have that. They have what's called controlled movements. So in between 1055 and 11, you can move to where you have to go, but you have to wait until that time. I didn't have that. I could go to the gym when I wanted to go to the gym. I could go to the library when I wanted to, but even with, and I had no fence, but I had woods around me and it was known, do not go into the woods or you will get an escape charge. So there's this invisible fence that surrounds the place and that that you just know that the guards are there watching you. And yeah. everything that you do is being monitored and watched yeah. that there's just no, there's no freedom yeah. and there's no, even though I could move around like that, I couldn't go past certain areas where there yeah. was actually nothing preventing me from doing it, mm-hmm. but I knew that I just couldn't. And it's so bizarre to, to, to witness the outside world through the television, through, you know, yes. news and newspapers and and to witness the outside world, but to feel very much like a fish in a fishbowl, just wow. looking through the glass at the outside world because I couldn't I couldn't interact with it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have a direct effect on it. 
Um, mm -hmm. My aunt was having some health issues. I couldn't be there for her. Mm -hmm. and, and that that hurts so much. Mm -hmm. I had a friend who passed away while I was in prison. I couldn't go to mm -hmm. the funeral. Mm -hmm. Things like that just really, they take away the freedoms that we take for granted. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we are counted multiple times throughout the day to make sure that we're all there. And mm -hmm. that is, you know, that you're, you're, you're a slave to the clock. You know, you yeah. gotta be, you gotta be where you're supposed to be at the four o'clock count. Yeah. Because otherwise you get in trouble. Yeah. So, you know, I have my alarm set on my, on my watch to make sure that I, you know, remember that oh, it's count. Yeah. And it, it's, it's all those little things. And it's just such a, it's a very helpless feeling. Yes. That's really what it is. It's a very helpless feeling. It's watching life go by and not being able, it's being a spectator of life and not out on the field actually playing. Wow. It's a system that doesn't make a lot of sense to me <laughs> because, um, you know, if the, this is such a meta conversation, but if the purpose of imprisonment, like physical imprisonment, if the purpose is re uh, uh, to reform, like to correct a behavior, it's like, but fucking, there's no correction of behavior. There's like to strip somebody's humanity away and, you know, to take away the freedom of time, the freedom of space, the freedom of choice, all that stuff. That's like, that's very punitive. And I understand that. And like what it does, that doesn't prepare anybody at any level of the system to then rejoin society in a healthy and productive way. Like removing somebody from, it's like putting you in a, in a coma for a couple of years, right? It doesn't like prepare you to then re-enter society in a different way. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. There is zero rehabilitation that I saw. I know there are some facilities that do offer college level courses that do have much better reentry. Where mm -hmm. I was, there was, there's no rehabilitation. It's just, it was just very punitive. And I don't mean to sound like I'm complaining. I, you know, no. that was, that was the, the consequence of my choices and I accept that. But just to witness some of the things, you know, I'll give you a brief, uh, brief example. We mm -hmm. had this guy, Jeff was, um, he was one of the, the nonviolent drug offenders yeah. and he wanted his GED. Mm -hmm. The education department didn't do anything for him. Two mm -hmm. inmates stepped up and, and wow. got Jeff his GED. Yeah. Well, here you yeah. have this guy who wants to do something, who's utilizing yeah. his time and the prison did nothing for him. And I think that's wow. just embarrassing and, and, and shameful that that's the way that it is. It's like, this is such an extreme example. So please forgive me. But like, if you put a kid in timeout, all you're doing is punishing a behavior with like no actual con, like there's a consequence, but it's not like a rational consequence, right? You put a kid in timeout when the timeout is over. Okay. Like what has changed, right? They've been removed from the family for a period of time, which comes with all kinds of shame and feelings of isolation, but it doesn't actually be like, Oh, the next time you're being really loud, I'm just going to ask you to use a quiet voice. I know that's an extreme example, but I feel like what you're saying is like, this is the ultimate timeout is like, you're removed from society. You're, there's nothing really happening in your own micro society that you're creating. And then you're kind of fed back to the world with now, 
don't know, my friends and I always joke, I'm Canadian, as you know, and we always joke that when we go to the States, going to the grocery stores in the US is so entertaining because like you're standing in front of this like shrine of yogurt. It's like, how, how am I supposed to choose yogurt? How am I supposed to choose a cereal from this like infinite endless wall of cereal and yogurt to choose from? It's like suddenly choice becomes oppressive. So for me, the prison system kind of removes people from society punitively and then spits them back into society is like, all right, now what do you want to do? There's like, and you, you communicated that when you're like, Jesus, like, am I allowed to go in there into my apartment building? Right. And it, yeah, I mean, we could, we could talk about this for, for <laughs> it really is just such, it really is just such a, a problem. I believe that if you do something wrong, you absolutely should be punished, but there has to be what I think, particularly here in the States is people, somebody does something wrong. They go to prison um, and they, you know, they'll use the, they, they're like, Oh, they, they're in prison and they forget that they're going to get out and yes. be a part of society. It's yes. forgotten that somebody has a two year sentence, a five year sentence. Yes. They're going to come out. They're forgotten about. I, I feel like the rest of society forgets about the fact that people are going to be released mm-hmm. and we want them to be better equipped when they are released so that they can not do it again. And mm-hmm. here in the States, I, I believe that our prison system is a bit of a business mm-hmm. and inmates are a business. Yeah. So do you really, if you're running a business, do you really want to you know, start <laughs> cutting down the number of clients that you have? <laughs> it doesn't behoove the business. Oh, that's so gross. It, yeah, it doesn't behoove the business to reduce the recidivism. And that's, I think, really, you know, scary. We've got a bunch in the States, we've got a bunch of um, privately held prisons that yeah. I mean, genuinely are businesses. That is wrong. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. So bringing this back to, you know, you've gone through this acceptance exercise that I accept these are the consequences of my action, like across the board, right? Personally, professionally, intimately, spiritually. Did that, did that allow you to like carve out a level of forgiveness? So I was, I was so psyched when you said that we were going to hit forgiveness because that just really <laughs> that, that brought me, that brought, brought me so much joy that we were going to discuss that. It, Forgiveness was one of the most significant parts of my journey, but I could not jump headfirst into it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I knew, I knew that I, if if I was going to recover from this, that mm-hmm. I had to forgive myself. But mm-hmm. if we rewind to what I was saying earlier, where the voice inside me told me not to do what I was doing, mm-hmm. so my crime was it was a fraud that lasted just about. 10 months and, and it was on my computer. So it was the click of a mouse button, click of an enter button. All of those are choices, right? Mm -hmm. So all of those choices that I made every single time that I did that, the voice inside told me this isn't the way. Mm -hmm. And it told me what, what you're doing is wrong. And I ignored it. I probably made thousands of choices Mm -hmm. that were made in the face of that voice telling me not to do it. And it's not the correct way. So you might, you probably know where this is going. What happens when you ignore that voice for a long enough time period? Mm-hmm. Well, my voice disappeared. And yes. I knew at the, at the time it felt like it was gone and it would never come back. Mm-hmm. I now know that that voice is 
or disappears. But at the time I said, it's completely gone. And with that voice being gone, I could not trust myself to make the simplest choices. Um, what to what to do in the gym, this was all inside prison, what, what workout I was going to do became a bit of an effort of, is that the right choice? Is that the right exercise? Small choices became impossible to make and I could not trust myself at all. So I had to, and if I couldn't trust myself, how was I possibly going to forgive myself? Because if I could sit there and say, I, I forgive myself, but if I don't trust myself, then I know that I'm lying. <laughs> So I, so I had to, I had to build, I had to rebuild that trust. I had to get that voice back. And I did that um, as a result of um, a friend of mine, um, amazing author, Kamal Ravikant. Um, check out his books if you haven't. He's just, he's an incredible guy. But he threw up this, and this actually, the rebuilding of trust started really after prison. He put up a tweet, you know, this simple tweet. Mm -hmm. simplest path to building self-confidence I know is making and keeping commitments to oneself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that just resonated. And I said, if you have confidence in yourself, that means you trust yourself. You mm -hmm. believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm going to start doing that. And I started making and keeping commitments to myself mm -hmm. over and over and over again to rebuild, to rebuild that trust yeah. in myself interwoven with that was doing the forgiveness practice yeah. of all of those things that I, in that, in that acceptance practice, all those harsh realities, yeah. all of those were the things that I had to forgive myself for. So I had the foundation of the things that I had to forgive myself for. So they were the, the self-trust and the forgiveness. They were interwoven with each other and they yeah. really worked very well with each other. And it took a while it took a while to get to that place where I forgave myself for the choices that I made. And, and that was really a massive unraveling of that shame. Mm. To me, that is so profoundly beautiful in so many ways. Like we think of, I've, I've spoken a lot about people think that everything exists in, in a, in a binary aspect, right? We forgive or we forget. And it's like, nope, not true. Like you're able to allow your experiences of your past inform your present to help you make good decisions for the future. For sure. For sure. For sure. While also being able to forgive the people who hurt you, including yourself, like there, there's a duality that exists. There's like this beautiful blend of both and, as opposed to choosing either or. And it's so complex because I have, you know, more uh, uh, blowing up the illusion of this binary system of like, oh, well, I did this thing. I committed fraud that I had to forgive. No, it sounds like you had to forgive like tens of thousands of micro choices. And because our healing is so nuanced and it's so layered, it's not this linear process. It's like this, as you know, like this spiral cyclical process. It's not like, okay, cool. Now I forgive myself. It's like, okay. So September 5th, 2012, I forgive myself for this. Right. And like being able to cultivate the neurological and emotional safety in forgiving each of those 10,000 micro choices is what ultimately it sounds like leads to 
forgiveness, period. To freedom. And forgiveness and to yeah. that to that freedom that we're that we're talking about. And another you you said something in there that brought up a very important part of the process for me was um self-worth and, yes. and knowing I'm enough. Uh, the belief that I was not worthy of yes. forgiving myself because forgiveness is one of the greatest acts of compassion that we can extend yes. to ourselves and to someone else. And so I wasn't worthy of that. And you know, this is a this is a, a silly example, but I think it speaks very well to where I was with my self worth. So in my apartment in Brooklyn, I have um I have a gorgeous balcony, and mm-hmm. outdoor space in the city is, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a hot commodity. I look at my balcony my yes. right now on my sliding door. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. But here's the thing. It took me a couple of years before I actually went out there and enjoyed it. I didn't think I was worthy Shit. of enjoying this balcony that I pay for. <laughs> that, wow. that, I mean, it's, it's there for me to enjoy. It took a few years for me to do that. And I actually remember sitting at the desk, looking out there. It, there's, there was no furniture. There was no anything. It just went unused. I said, how am I going to ever forgive myself and know that I'm worthy if I don't use a balcony that I pay for? And I I went out and I bought a set on Amazon. I bought Mm -hmm. plants. I decorated it. And I started utilizing it. But that was a form of self-punishment. And I was punishing myself in these small ways. And I had Mm -hmm. to identify all of those areas where I'm punishing myself and unwind those things to build up that sense of worth so that I could also feel worthy of extending that great act of love and compassion that forgiveness is. Wow. I feel like what you're describing is such a human, it's such a human experience. You know, I have a lot of people ask me about exactly what you were talking about. Like, you know, not only self-worth and how to cultivate self-worth, because it's not this like, oh, today I'm going to decide I'm actually worthy. No, we are talking about like, like a very complex labyrinth of fuck, how did I get here? And like, where do I go back to get more clues about where this absence of self, this belief of the absence of self-worth came from? But also what you're saying about, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought because I got so lost in my own labyrinth of like, what does self-worth mean? Um, Oh, that's so embarrassing. What just happened? It was just before you were talking about your apartment and the the balcony. We're talking about forgiveness. <laughs> Weird. forgiveness um, and the the ten thousand choices and yeah. trust. Yes. So people want to know, like, oh God, how do I trust myself? Right. And you you described it so beautifully. Is like one, you make the decision to trust yourself, and two. You do so, again, that word micro really comes up for me in these like micro acts. So it might be as simple as, you know, looking at the like incarceration context, like I am going to get up and get dressed today at, you know, by eight o'clock. You do it and it's like, check. I set out to accomplish a goal. I checked it off. I'm safe. I'm emotionally safe. I'm neurologically safe. Therefore, you teach your brain this lesson of like, oh, I set a goal and I achieve it and I'm still safe to trust that that was a good decision, right? It's like such a simple example, but it's so profound because that is how the brain works. So it's not like, 
in order to learn how to trust myself, I'm going to book a vacation to, you know, a country where they don't speak any English and I'm just going to go and go for it. It's like, no, you're going to commit to doing tiny little things and establish a new baseline level of trust and confidence and security so that you're able to cultivate a larger sense of each of those three things through teeny tiny little micro acts. I, I, in my book, I write about like, it can be something as simple as like, it's Tuesday, I'm going to make tacos. I'm going to go to the store. I buy all the ingredients to make tacos. I make tacos. I eat tacos. Not only am I really happy because I ate tacos, but like, I'm really happy. My brain feels so sated and full because it did everything it set out to do. And that's what you're saying is like, that's how you establish confidence and, and self-trust again and create that freedom to listen to your own intuition. It, I love everything that you just said. And the tacos was a great, I mean, it's a perfect <laughs> example. And I mean, and you, you know, this, our brains are actually wired for us yeah. to succeed. You know, think yeah. about our to-do list. When you yeah. cross off, um, buy things for tacos, it feels good. That's that little shot of dopamine. That's your brain totally wanting cool. you to succeed. Um, yeah. I, and something I do with my clients now, which I wish I had known back in the day um, when I would make and keep the commitment uh, I think this is so critical and it's to what we're speaking about right now, um, mm -hmm. to celebrate it, to have a little celebration, to, to acknowledge yes. yourself and to yes. really, really wire the brain for everything that you were just talking about, that I'm safe, I'm okay, I'm sated, and also to make it feel good where the brain's like, oh, oh, I want to do that again. Yeah, that exactly. I, want, I, I can't wait to do that again. The same things that make addiction and Instagram, which is an addiction, like so shitty are the same things we can use to game our own system, right? Like, oh, I got a little taste of that. It felt fucking great. I want more of that. It's like, cool. So channel that into the stuff that is really, really healthy and that serves you as opposed to, as opposed to the stuff that like causes you to self-destruct, <laughs> but like you get a little bit of dopamine a little bit is no longer enough. You need a little bit more every time, right? And when you use that to fuel... Not, not a checklist of because you're doing it to like prove something to somebody else, like not that, not an external checklist, but that internal checklist of safety, security, and accomplishment doing it only. And I can't underline that enough, like only because it feels good at an internal level. That is how you gain your own system. Yeah, exactly. I love that. I mean, that's exactly it. And when you start understanding that's the, how the brain works, it makes yeah makes these things much easier. It, it makes the change, um, it facilitates change. And I wish I had known the celebration part while I, yeah. when I first started doing it, it worked out yeah. just fine as is, but I can just see the compounding. It's like mm -hmm. compound interest when you celebrate. It just really put <laughs> <laughs> a massive return on it. <laughs> I am all about the ROI of happiness. I am like <laughs> here for that. Um, I know you mentioned one of your friends who's an author. I know you're writing your own book, which we're going to talk about in a second. What is, if you, if you're able to pick one, is there like a definitive book that's just been fundamental to, to recreating you to, that really made you feel like yourself? Oh, okay. That is, that made me feel like myself yeah. would be live your truth. Kamal Ravikant. Right on. Right on. That would definitely be it. And it's funny, I like the way that you put that caveat in there because I was listening to the question, but my brain was doing that thing that I had an answer before you even said it. I, would have, I, would have, I, I was going to I was going to say until you threw that in there. 
uh, that, you know, that made me feel like myself. I would have said Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, I think oh, is wow. one of the most profound um, books that's ever been written. I, and I believe it should be mandatory reading for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> that's how that's how strongly I believe in that. But Live Your Truth by Kamal Ravikant is just a beautifully written, stunning book that came into my life at the exact right time. Okay. You know, it really, it just entered my life. I was living in the Brooklyn halfway house, mm-hmm. um, which is not a nice place. Mm-hmm. You know, that was actually, I was no longer in my cushy prison. I was in general population living in the halfway house. Wow. And, and I found that book and it just really, you know, it sounds almost so like cliche and trite to say, but it was, that was, it changed my life. I love that. I love that. Is there, I'm really into music in addition to being into like the design of cars. Um, is there like a particular song that just lights you up or brings you to your knees? Or can you tell me one of each? So I will, when I was, when I was in prison, we did have a radio um, mm-hmm. in the gym, but my favorite bands aren't played on the radio. <laughs> I, li- I listen to Metallica, Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Total metalhead. Total, total metalhead. Um, and, and they're just not played that frequently. Yeah. So when I got out of prison and I got my, my iPhone back, uh, which I was actually smuggling into the Brooklyn halfway house, yes. ni- 99% of us did it. And you yeah. know, I, had, I made a false bottom in my backpack to sneak it in. Every day. Oh when I first, but when I first, when I first had it and I'm in my room and I realized I was like, I just went 15 months without hearing my music and how much music and how important Uh, music was to me and is to me. I'll tell you the first song that I played. It's not inspirational. It's not anything, but it's on one by Metallica. Right on. And that is just, that's, that's been my favorite song for since it came out in 1989. That song will get me motivated to go to the gym. It is, it's hard. It's heavy. And even through that, it can put me in a meditative state where I'll have some of my best thoughts because wow. I just know it so well. And I think That's it's got one of the most beautiful guitar solos of all time, but it may be a little bit of a random one, a little bit different than maybe you were that. expecting. But that, <laughs> that is, that's, my, that's my go-to. I love that. Uh, and is there one food in your life that's like so, it's like the epitome of comfort for you? Oh, uh, spaghetti bolognese. Yeah. Do you make it or do you like go out for it? I well, oh, so this is I realized that I have an intolerance for gluten. Gluten and I don't get along that well. And I used to eat this and I loved it and I, you know, never felt great. And now that I realize that I don't really have it that often. And gluten-free pasta isn't it's just not that good. But if I do go to yeah, it's not the same. If I if I go to a really good Italian restaurant. I will, mm-hmm. I will treat myself knowing that I'm not going to feel great later, but that's <laughs> you're like, it's going to be worth it though. <laughs> it's, gonna be, it's going to be, it's going to be worth it. Exactly. But that like, is my noodles, noodles, bolognese doesn't, <laughs> doesn't quite have the same effect. Does it? <laughs> it really doesn't. Not at all. Damn not it. All. I've tried it and it does not work. <laughs> can I, can I share just on that food subject? Can I share a really quick story of something that happened inside prison? So yes. I'm sitting, remember I said we didn't have, um, we didn't have doors on our cells. Anybody yes. could walk in and out. So I'm sleeping in my bunk. I'm on the top bunk and somebody starts shaking me. And my oh, nickname God. in prison was Smiley. And I'm <laughs> getting shaken. Pr- I'm scares the hell out of me, but I hear Smiley, Smiley. I was like, oh, and I opened my eyes and it's my, it's my buddy, Steve. And he's got 
this foam container that we used to put food in from the from the kitchen. Yeah. And he goes, and he opens it. I mean, it's like three in the morning or whatever it is. I'm groggy. I'm sleepy. I'm scared because I was just woken up inside prison. And he opens mm. it with a big mm. smile and he goes, sushi. And I was like, <laughs> oh, somebody <laughs> snuck in. Somebody snuck in sushi. God knows how old. Least, oh, my God. How long ago the sushi was stuck oh in? But my I, God. in my sleepy state, I grab a piece, I'm no, lying in my prison bunk, and I ate it. And let me tell you how delicious and wonderful that sushi was. <laughs> oh my God, that's the best. I'm trying to think of like the right alliteration alliteration to like put like sleepy sushi <laughs> together. That like that is so awesome. Who knows how old it was, but again, it sounds like it doesn't matter. It's going to be, the pain is going to be worth the gain. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. It was, I mean, because I mean, you can only imagine what prison food is like. So to be yeah. able to, when people would sneak different things in like that, it was, I mean, what a treat. Wow. Final question for you is, and I always get so clunky when I ask this, which is stupid, but it's the way that it is. Knowing that this is completely all about how to be a human what does that mean to you? Like, how do you be a human? One word, one word came up for me and it came from very deep within and it's love. Ah. And that's, it is, it is to love mm -hmm. and equally important to be open to receiving love. That that's I amazing. believe is what it means to be human. I think that you're right. I think it is that simple and that complicated, but I really, I think it's that really, exactly. all the, all the, <laughs> the most beautiful things in the world are technically very simple. Their yeah, ex <laughs> execution yeah. is where the, yeah. where the stumbling blocks come in. Oh my God. You're so wonderful. Where can people find you? Not in your <laughs> delivering sushi to you in the middle of the night. Other than that, where can they find you? <laughs> Other than that, which would scare the hell out of me again. <laughs> Not so smiley now, are you? <laughs> yeah, where's the smile, smiley? <laughs> I, I hang out on Instagram um, every single day. I'm posting Craig underscore Stanland. Then my website is craigstanland.com. My TED Talk is how I learned my greatest worth in federal prison. And those are pretty much, those are... That's me. Do you have any um, timing information with respect to your book? It is. We are looking at the end of May. Okay. I do not have a specific date right now. The onus okay. is on me because I am on the, I'm editing right now. Okay. So the moment we lock in the manuscript, it's going to be four months after we lock in the manuscript. I'm right on. planning on finishing my editing this week then they've got okay. to do their review. So hopefully by the end of January, which would be the end of May, that okay. is what I am targeting. Like no pressure, but can you hurry the hell up so I can read this? <laughs> no, but, but no pressure. Um, I, I, no pressure. I, hope, <laughs> I, I, I hope as soon as you hang up from this podcast, I hope you're going to grab your computer and start editing, but no pressure. <laughs> None, like none. But can you just meet all of my needs and release this book as fast as humanly possible? That would be much appreciated. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best just for you. I'm okay. gonna do it just for you. 
Oh my God, Craig, I can't thank you enough. I think you're so interesting. And I think, and you know, like all of the word, the coaching words come up, right? Like you're beacon of resilience and grace and compassion. I just like, I'm so proud of you, but I feel not, but, and I feel just so fucking honored, like to be able to connect with you in this way. I just like keep doing your thing. (laughs) Well, Lisa, I want to acknowledge you for everything that you do and the way that you show up. And I'm, I'm so in awe of the way that you stand in your power. I, I really am. It, is inspiring to me and I absolutely fucking love it. And I I just congratulate you for the way that you do what you do and for having this platform so that we can have these conversations. I was, I I cannot reiterate no bullshit when, when we connected and you, you asked me to come on, I was so friggin' psyched. I told a ton of people, (laughs) I was like, I mean, I was, I was was so thrilled to, to be able to, to connect with you in this way. And this has been an absolute blast. That's so awesome. Thank you so much. You are very welcome. Thank you. There is no magic formula, except knowing that the magic formula is that we are all figuring this out, that there is no real end point. Each and every one of us is in a process of self-creation. What if there is no right way? What if there is no wrong way? What if there's just your way? How freeing would it be to know that every decision you make is the right decision for you? Can you love yourself enough to detach from outcome or from judging that things are good or bad and accepting that they just are? Yeah, you fucking can.